host, Emily. I am glad you're here. It's season six where we're spending a little bit of time with some of my favorite movies, paired up in double features, because if you haven't noticed, I like to stuff as much into a season as possible. Today's theme that only exists really because I made it up to make two movies fit together is a couple of awkward people fall in love. So what might you find in this theme? First, this doesn't work if there aren't awkward people. Awkward people are my favorite type of people because I myself am incredibly awkward. In the case of a couple of awkward people fall in love, it might mean that one or both parties of the relationship are indeed awkward. It's personal preference, whether you like just one to set the standard as being weird and uncouth, or you need both to march to the beat of their own drum. But lucky for you, today we get both situations. So that's kind of fun. What else do you need? You need an environment that allows them to be awkward. Now, this walks a delicate line, and I feel like I should have a little bit of a disclaimer. I don't think awkward is bad. This is not a judgment. Being awkward doesn't make you less than or incapable. It just means that there are the norms that society has deemed normal. (laughs) And there are the people that either choose not to or can't color between those lines. That was... That itself was awkward, guys. That was awkward. So that environment might mean that they are shy, a fashionable dresser, have an inability to be cool in the presence of someone they like. They might have an odd hobby, partake in light stocking, or have a job that is a bit kooky. The awkwardness is endearing in the best way possible. And I think that's where all of this is. That's the linchpin. So you have your awkward person, the environment that facilitates their awkwardness, and a plot that it's in itself a bit awkward. That puts them in the vicinity of someone that makes their heart go pitter-patter. I mean, it is people falling in love. And that's, that's about it. That's all you really need for this theme to work. Why do I like this theme? Because there's always, always a lot of heart to the story. It's a human story with real emotions and situations that feel familiar, especially for a person that doesn't always know what to say or how to behave with any sort of confidence. But it's also about being truly and uniquely you and being okay with that. And I love stories that highlight characters that are able to do that, even if it's what they are learning throughout the process. I just have always loved that. What frustrates me about this theme Some storytellers take it too far. The charm of the awkward just becomes uncomfortable or the awkward person starts behaving in a way that isn't just offbeat but wrong. You have to give people the benefit of the doubt to be human. And the truth is that most people that are awkward are clearly aware that they are and would be attempting not to be, which makes them even more awkward but in a real way. Not not sure that makes any sense. But this is a perfect time to just jump into our movies of the day. First up, the only Will Ferrell movie I really enjoy, Stranger Than Fiction. This is a story about Harold Crick. Harold is a really boring guy. I mean, he's a downer. He gets up at the exact same time every day. He brushes his teeth the same number of brushes every day, arrives at the bus stop as the bus approaches without fail every day. And then one day he begins to hear the voice of a woman narrating his every move. She seems omniscient to not only know his every action, but also what he's thinking and feeling. Naturally, Harold Crick is alarmed. He goes to a therapist for help, but she is unhelpful, immediately passing it off as schizophrenia. And when Harold asks this unhelpful therapist who she 
she would recommend he see if, in fact, someone was actually narrating his life, and she suggests a literature professor. So Harold Crick finds himself a literature professor, played by Dustin Hoffman, who is totally on board with helping him discover what is going on. So while Harold is living his boring life as an IRS auditor, he's also examining what kind of story he's in the middle of. Is he living out a comedy or a tragedy? The The literature professor is trying to narrow, narrow down who is narrating. It quickly becomes apparent that he is indeed in the middle of a tragedy. Not only does the beautiful, charismatic Baker woman who he's currently auditing hate him, played by Maggie Gyllenhaal. I love her. Uh, she is not anti-paying taxes, but anti-paying certain taxes. Uh, just she's... She's angry, but not wrong, and I just I kind of love her. Well, he attempts to talk and flirt with her on multiple occasions, and she is either offended or furious. Uh, but his apartment then is also randomly destroyed by a crane because some construction work construction workers get the address wrong on the building they're supposed to be tearing down. So his life is definitely a tragedy. And being a tragedy and knowing how most, if not all, tragedies end, the literature professor suggests to Harold that he just start living his life. There's a very good chance he's going to die. So he, like, really living it. And as much as I adore the awkward love story, which we'll get to in a sec, I really love that message, that there is a big difference between living and living the life you want to live. Harold was on autopilot, and yet deep down, Harold has dreams, not big audacious dreams, but dreams, like wanting to learn how to play the guitar. He was he wasn't living for the dreams. He was just living. And this, it hits close to home. I, I think I'm doing better than Harold, but boy, is it easy to fall into the trap of just living, getting up, doing your thing every day, uh, and not living for what you want. So that's what Harold does. He's He starts to live his life. He buys a guitar, ends up crashing with a friend from work, and they have a fun little relationship. Uh, this guy's kind of quirky in himself. He found another awkward person at work, which is awesome. His home very much resembles something you would see in Star Trek. Uh, and most adorably, he buys the beautiful, charismatic baker woman flowers. Not like the plant, but a box of different kind of flowers for baking. And that is maybe just the sweetest thing ever. And she invites him in and he sings, he plays the guitar and she falls for him. And the best line he can come up with is, I want you, which is awkward, but also incredibly romantic. So you have this man who gets nervous around the woman he likes, uh, doesn't ever really know what to say, is kind of fidgety, does a lot of different, you know, counting of things. Uh, and then you have this woman who is vibrant and full of life and has a ton of friends and watching him try to interact with her is uncomfortable at times, but it's also just beautiful. And after spending the night with the baker, he rushes back to the literature professor to tell him that he's changed his mind. Maybe he's living in a comedy. And it's in that meeting that Harold hears the voice of the narrator, but this time coming through the speakers of his TV. Her name is Karen Eiffel, and she's writing a new book. It's a book about a gentleman named Harold Crick, and she's been fighting writer's block, but she has to fig because she's trying to figure out how to kill Harold Crick. Because he's an IRS agent, Harold is able to track down Ms. Eiffel, and she's more than a little alarmed, of course. I mean, you try to think, what would an author do 
if all of a sudden their main character comes strolling into the room. She's obviously startled and doubtful at first, but despite the impossibility, she realizes that she has come face to face with one of her characters. And so she offers to let him read the unfinished manuscript, which he does in one sitting on the bus. And it's beautiful and moving and can only end in one way. He sees what the end of the story needs to be, and that is with the death of Harold Crick. So real Harold gives her his blessing and then goes to spend one last night with the beautiful charismatic baker, and he gets his affairs in order, and then he starts to play out the ending that he knows is coming. Except that Karen Eiffel can't do it. Even though the book would be a masterpiece, her masterpiece, she can't do that to Harold. And so she doesn't kill him. He doesn't come out unscathed. Uh, but Harold Crick, who is now more than just alive and is actually living his life, is taking advantage of his second chance. So why is this one on the list? Because I love Harold Crick. He is stammering. He's awkward. And the way with a bit of a nudge, he starts to see his life and live it is, I think, beautiful. I love his relationship with the baker, how flustered he gets and how she sees through his awkwardness and makes a real connection. You would never look at these two and think, oh, they would make a great couple. Or, oh, they could definitely be attracted to one another. Not that Will Ferrell isn't attractive or not that Maggie Gyllenhaal isn't attractive, but just their personalities were so different in the movie that they're not a natural pair, but it works in a really awesome way. I like her fiery stubbornness and the way she wants to change the world with baked goods, I think is also a beautiful thing. And I love the idea that it's never too late to live the life you want to live. So a few interesting tidbits about the movie. While filming, Will Ferrell wore an earpiece that fed him Dame Emma Thompson's lines, um, which just kind of helped him react more naturally and the other cast members react more naturally to Ferrell, who, I mean, they couldn't hear the narrator. It was only um, Harold Crick that could hear the narrator. So it helped them react a little more naturally to all of that. A single page of the book can be glimpsed if the movie is paused, while Professor Jules Hilbert, again played by Dustin Hoffman, is reading it. The page quotes word for word the opening narration of the movie as Harold goes about his day. The page also contains a detail that is not mentioned otherwise. Harold's co-worker, Diane Gordon, has been in love with him since the eighth grade, but is too shy to say so. And in the shown page, when Harold requests a file from her, she asks for clarification in the hopes he might once say good morning to her. That's just sad. <laughs> The title of the movie comes from a famous quote from Lord Byron. I don't know if I believe this one. I'll tell you the quote here in a second, because then there was an, another interesting tidbit that said it was from somewhere else, but I'll read you this one anyway. Uh, Lord Byron's Don Juan, "'Tis strange but true, for truth is always strange, stranger than fiction. If it could be told, how much would novels gain by the exchange? How differently the world would men behold." And the name of Anna Pascal, that's Maggie Gyllenhaal, the charismatic baker, her bakery is called The Uprising. So just a really fun, if you have not invested time in watching this movie, I highly recommend it. it if you are not a Will Ferrell fan, it doesn't feel like him. He's very contained in this, doesn't get wild and crazy. And it's just, it's very, very sweet. And now for movie two. Uh, this one has been with me it feels like forever, um, probably at least, well, at least 18 years, 
probably a few more. Uh, and that is Amelie, a story with the basic premise of a young woman who gets all up in everyone's business and meets a man who matches her weird and awkward and the two fall in love. <laughs> In case you're unfamiliar with this gym, it's French. This is my only foray into French cinema. I do not think I have ever watched any other French films. And as much as I love the quirky storytelling and colorful characters in this one, I don't think French cinema will ever become a staple in my pop culture lexicon. Um, we'll never just enter the vocabulary where I'm like, let's just talk about French cinema. <laughs> Because it's weird. And I think it that you're supposed to probably get a lot more out of it than I, I actually get. I am not great when it comes to symbolism and things like that. You should have seen me in my Shakespeare classes in college. While I love the plays, uh, I just was not good at trying to tell you what the moon meant. Anyway, diving in. So we have Amelie, who grew up in a kooky home. Her Parents believed that she had a heart condition, so they chose to homeschool her. Well, to combat that loneliness, Amelie developed a rather vivid imagination and curiosity that would often get her into trouble. And this imagination was a bit too much for her mother. And much like Mrs. Bennett in Pride and Prejudice, she suffered from a flustering of the nerves. So things sadly don't end well for Amelie's mother. I say sadly, but it's, she dies in a horribly but yet hilarious way. Um, <laughs> she gets hit by a Canadian. Uh, this tourist jumps off Notre Dame and it lands on her. <laughs> That's not funny. Uh, it's not funny. But the visual is kind of funny. And so Amelie is left to be raised then by her very sad father. Fast forward to adult Amelie. She's living in an adorable apartment above a grocer and just down the street from the cafe she works in. And one day when she hears that Princess Di has died in a horrible car accident, she drops a perfume bottle because she's startled. And it knocks off a wall tile in her home revealing a long-lost treasure that had been safely stored in the wall for a very long time. And thus begins her journey of helping people. I used air quotes because I have mixed feelings about that particular journey. She's kind of a busybody. It seems more for her own amusement and satisfaction than the well-being of others, but it just, it, it contributes to her awkward. She does not really know how to interact with people. She does okay at her job, but there's a oh there's a mis mischievous glint to her eye that I think would kind of make me nervous. <laughs> so with the help of the her neighbors, she actually hunts down the boy, now a very grown man that once lived in her apartment and hid the box. Uh, he likes to they, every character. There's a narrator that pops in that kind of in a gives them quirky personality traits. Like this man likes to roast chicken and eat it off the bone while it's steaming hot, which I don't eat meat off a bone. I find that disgusting. And the vision in the movie, it's kind of gross, but it's, it's just a weird, it's a weird personality quirky trait to give someone, which is interesting, but it does into him end up with him, um, reuniting with some of his family members. So it, it was a good thing. It was a good thing. Um, but on her way back from dropping, you know, kind of, she doesn't just hand this box to the man either. She's got to put it in a phone booth and then go somewhere else and call and watch him pick it up at a phone booth because she's just not good with people. <laughs> but she's on her way home and she is in the train station and she watches a man digging discarded photos out from under a photo booth. 
And of course, that's the guy she's going to fall in love with. He he works at a sex shop uh, and has created an entire album of the photos he collects, which is both creepy and artistic in a strange way. So Amelie spends much of the rest of the movie secretly flirting with him because she's too afraid to make herself known. She dresses up as Zorro at one point. Um, she takes pictures of herself in the photo booth and then puts them under where he'll find them and they start this kind of cat and mouse thing. She also helps the grocer's disabled assistant because the grocer is a jerk. Um, so she sneaks into this man's apartment and changes things around, making him think he's going crazy. See what I mean about helpfulness? Uh, she forges a letter to a grieving neighbor who lost her husband in the war and has never been able to move on from the fact that she never heard from again. So she writes this letter as if it was him um, saying one last time that he loved her. She convinces two regulars at the cafe she works at that they are in love with each other. Two people that have zero business being in a relationship, at least without professional help first. Uh, and she befriends a different neighbor with brittle bones who is wise, observant, and obsessed with finding the soul of a young girl he's painting. He just can't paint her right, which that trope has been in other movies too. And I'm not a painter. And I think that's kind of fascinating how you could be, I mean, it it looked great, <laughs> like from a, a layman looking at a painting, you'd be like, oh no, that looks great. That looks really good. Um, but for someone that does put so much into the thing they're creating. It's an interesting thing that kind of shows up in movies from time to time. In the end, this wise, observant neighbor convinces Amelie that she's strong enough, her heart, that her parents thought she had that heart condition, her heart is strong enough to face the possibility of heartache and that she should open herself up to this man that collects photos in train stations and has created a disturbing scrapbook. And so that's what she does. Um, she lets him into her home. They spend the night together and you just assume Amelie and this man live happily ever after with their weirdness. I, I, I don't know if I'd trust a man that just kind of drives around the city stealing pictures and putting them into a scrapbook but oh i forgot to mention her sad father that her sad father so after her mother's death her father kind of became obsessed with gardening and in his garden was a dearly beloved garden gnome so one day amelie steals the garden gnome and hands it off to a flight attendant friend who takes pictures of said gnome traveling the world and sends them back to the father and at the end of the movie her father packs his bags and goes on his own journey because you know if the gnome can make it out in the big wide world so can he. And that is where I first got the idea that I wanted a garden gnome. I loved that. That just seems so, I don't love to have my picture taken, uh, especially out on vacation. I'd rather, you know, I don't need to take selfies or pictures of me in there. I want to remember the places I'm seeing and not necessarily me there. So I asked my mom after I saw this movie for a garden gnome for Christmas, which she got very upset with me because who can find a garden gnome in the dead of winter? Um, but she found one, and I got two in a box. And there was one standing up and one sitting down, and I named them Mike and Ike. And Mike has traveled with me all over the world. He has pictures from Italy and Mexico and Scotland. I just everywhere. He goes with me all over the United States. Uh, and it's it's been fun. And I think the best part of Mike the garden gnome um, is that he, he's a conversation starter, that I have met people all over the world. I almost got pushed into the Mediterranean Sea by some Germans who got overly excited to see him. When I went to Mexico, the 
amazing tour guide when we went to Chichen Itza, one of the Mayan temples, pyramids. Um, he said that people would often bring idols. And so they, they, there were Mayan um, tourists, catering to tourists, stuff they were selling at the pyramid. And I got to chat with a whole bunch of them. I have met and talked to so many people who just want either to take a picture of him or take her up oddly a picture of the gnome and me together. It's been a weird thing, but it has been one of the joys of my life. Um, my off topic, my dentist finds it absolutely hilarious. And so a couple years ago, my parents and I went to, or last year, went to Colorado and he offhandedly said the dentist to my parents, Hey, um, is Mike the garden gnome going? And I had not planned on taking him because he does get quite heavy uh, when you're carrying him around. But I took him and I started taking pictures with him and I met some hilarious people in the top of Pikes Peak. But I started taking pictures and sending them to my dentist via email. Uh, so he's he's brought joy to my life, this garden gnome. Um, sadly, Ike uh, does not exist anymore. He was... Um, he was killed. He was killed by my dog. Uh, so Mike, thank goodness, is up in a high location. I do always have the fear that when I try to take him through customs uh, that somebody or TSA that they will try to break him open because they're thinking I'm smuggling drugs. But uh, even though I do get pulled over every time by TSA agents, they've not threatened to break him open or hold him. So that's good. I have also been kicked out, literally kicked out, chased off the property by security of um, Elvis's home and in Memphis. And I was also asked to, I was escorted to lockers at Disneyland because apparently you cannot bring non-Disney related items like that into the park. So at Disneyland, they escorted me to the lockers and had to watch me lock him up. Uh, so he is nothing if not exciting. Uh, so just another reason why I love this movie. Despite being Besides being the inspiration for Mike the Garden Gnome, and despite the illegal nature of some of Amelie's helpful choices, it does have kind of a great message, and that's why it's on this list. Even awkward people who never talk to one another can fall in love. And Amelie sees the world, and I think this is probably why I love it more. She sees the world just a little off, which I loved, and that she was a woman of action, that, you know, whether even though some of her actions were illegal, she just didn't sit around, sit around thinking about doing something. She got up and did it, and I always just really liked that part of her personality. Just a couple interesting tidbits on this one. When every, whenever the film was being shot on location, director Jean-Pierre Jeannot and the crew would clean the area of debris, grime, trash, and graffiti so that the real settings would match the fantastic nature of the film. This was especially difficult task when it comes came time to shoot at the huge train station. I have been to Paris one time and I did not love it. Um, I can see why they would have to clear a lot of debris, grime, trash, and graffiti, because it was kind of a dirty city. <laughs> it was in 1974 that Jean-Pierre Jeannot began collecting the memories and events that make up the story of Amelie. And there are just a lot of little quirky things, and almost like a butterfly effect thing that the narrator does. Like, she was born, and then five miles away, this was happening, and Two minutes after that, this was happening, like just kind of a bigger scope of humanity, which is very interesting. 
Amelie's dad's gnome was given to the actual owners of Café des Deux Moulins. I don't speak French. Um, So the cafe that Amelie works at. Unfortunately, the gnome was stolen from that place, which just makes me so sad. And with the exception of brief exchanges on the phone at Sacre-Cœur and in person at the Deux Moulins, Amelie and Nino, the man that she falls in love with, the guy that collects the photos and works in the sex shop, they do not exchange a single line of dialogue during the course of the entire film. And if that is not awkward, I don't know what else is. But that is all we have for today. Thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so that we can keep going on this journey together. Coming up in our next episode, we are going to be talking about friend groups and how they are complicated. That's the theme. And we're going to talk about where the boys are in Empire Records, another two of my favorite films. If you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture could join in on the fun as well. Or if you want to share the podcast, that would be awesome too. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as A Bit of Fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today and I will see you next time. Thank you.